This is our, what we call, core doctrine series. This is the foundation of the Christian faith. What do Christians believe? The most central doctrines of the faith. And if our gadget's working, you can see we're doing, as I mentioned, three weeks. Last week was biblical theology of sin. I misspoke. I added an R in an already hard to pronounce word. It's hamartiology, not harmartiology, but hamartia is the Greek word for sin, and hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. So last week we looked at week one, that biblical theology. This week we'll look at historical theology related to this doctrinal truth, and then Lord willing, next week some practical applications for our lives. So, as I mentioned, Article 5, Part 2, Historical Theology. And the affirmation of faith, our elder affirmation of faith, Article 5, is titled, Man's Sin and Fall from Fellowship with God. That article has three parts, 5.1, point 0.2, point 0.3. Follow along as I read it. We believe that although God created man morally upright, he was led astray from God's word and wisdom by the subtlety of Satan's deceit and chose to take what was forbidden and thus declare his independence from, distrust for, and disobedience toward his all-good and gracious creator. Thus our first parents by this sin fell from their original innocence and communion with God. Part two, we believe that as the head of the human race, Adam's fall became the fall of all his posterity in such a way that corruption, guilt, death, and condemnation belong properly to every person. All persons are thus corrupt, pardon me, corrupt by nature, right there, all persons are thus corrupt by nature, enslaved to sin, and morally unable to delight in God and overcome their own proud preference for the fleeting pleasures of self-rule. And finally, part three, we believe that God has subjected the creation to futility and the entire human family is made justly liable to untold miseries of sickness, decay, calamity, and loss. Thus, all the adversity and suffering in the world is an echo and a witness of the exceedingly great evil and moral depravity in the heart of mankind. And every new day of life is a God-given, merciful reprieve from imminent judgment pointing to repentance. Well, that uh, is the is the, doc, the uh, affirmation of uh, Article 5. And then what I want to do today is grossly oversimplify 2,000 years of church history. We'll look at two eras, our, the early church era, the first, say, five to six centuries of the faith, Jesus and the apostles being in the first century. So the four or five centuries following, and particularly the development of a heretical understanding of salvation, that's the fruit, which was rooted in a heretical understanding of sin, the problem. So I can say it this way in the early church, and I can say it by way of application for today. If you create a functional hell, hell is whatever, functional hell, not being liked, then salvation is being liked. Similarly, in the early church, if you create a functional definition of sin that's not radically biblical, 
then you don't need a cosmic salvation. So the doctrine of sin is a prelude Biblically speaking, if you're going to order things, ordo salutis, the Latin phrase for the order of salvation, a biblical doctrine of sin is a prelude to a biblical doctrine of salvation. So you hear phrases around Grace Church a lot like God, man, sin, salvation. We can't really understand what salvation is biblically without some semblance of a biblical understanding of sin, which is built on biblical anthropology, doctrine of man, which is built on biblical theology, 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 doctrine of God. So we'll look at the early church momentarily, and I said grossly oversimplify. Then we'll fast forward to the 16th century, the epic, the era of the Reformation in church history, and we'll look at two particular redefinitions of sin that were, again, heretical and deemed so by the Christian community through councils and creeds and confessions and so forth. All right, so in the early church, we wanna see what was one of the challenges to a biblical hamartiology, doctrine of sin. So as we break our study into these two uh, church ages um, of the historical development, development of the church's doctrine of sin, we're going to deal with those heretical views that emerged in the early and Reformation period and how the church responded. The early church heresy, let me go back, was Gnosticism. And the medieval church, the 16th century era, was Pelagianism. So don't go to sleep for about the next 15 minutes, all right? Gnosticism and Pelagianism. These have taken a few uh, forms of further development throughout church history. But first, let me begin with, an, with a positive affirmation. And this is actually a response, not entirely, but in large part, to the heresy of Gnosticism. We cite the Apostles' Creed. It's a 6th or 7th century, depending on how you date the final version of it, uh, confession of the Christian faith that all Christians in all places, in all times, embrace. So the Apostles' Creed is fundamental, kind of Christianity 101 put into a tight package. And many believe it's just a meditation on about five passages of Scripture. But notice that in the final paragraph it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, every time Baptistic, Evangelical, Protestants talk about that phrase. We always have to explain. They don't mean capital C, Catholic. They mean universal, worldwide. Uh, to say that something is Catholic is to say that it's ubiquitous. It's for the whole world. So I believe in the holy Catholic church in that sense. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Well, that affirmation, the forgiveness of sins, was in large part, not entirely, a response to the developing heresy of Gnosticism. You may have heard that word before. So Gnosticism was deemed an early church heresy, and let me give you some, uh, some categories for Gnosticism. Lexham Bible Dictionary says, Gnosticism is that people will only be saved through revealed knowledge or gnosis, that's that Greek word, gnosis. And so salvation 
is um, dependent on certain knowledge. So what is sin then? It's a deficiency of this enlightened knowing. Gnosticism rooted in gnosis, knowing. So if you just knew more or were enlightened better, then you would be saved. So see, you get a functional savior, but that's rooted in a functional definition of the problem of of sin. The basic similarity between Gnostic adherence, there is no like Gnosticism, like Christianity. It just has taken various forms, especially in those early centuries, but there there are some similarities among Gnostic adherence. That is a dualistic worldview creating a bold distinction between spiritual and material. You could say it this way, flesh is bad, spirit is good. Some of the tried and true Gnostics, the early church heretics, would argue that Jesus was an apparition. He actually wasn't incarnate. He didn't have flesh and blood, bones, body, lungs, breathe air. He just appeared an apparition to be physical, but he is only spiritual because again, flesh is bad, spirit is good, Jesus therefore couldn't be flesh. That would be one of the extreme tenets of the most uh, heretical expressions of Gnosticism. Many scholars suspect, there's still raging debate about this today, so it's not unanimous, but suspect that the Apostle John was combating an early form, proto-Gnosticism, in some of his writings. That it was already emerging by, say, the mid-60s AD, about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. There was a, uh, a, a spiritualizing of Jesus and the gospel. And some think John was writing against this. Let me give you two kind of key texts that, that people would point to. First John 4, 2. John writes, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, do you see why some would think that's a, a push against some of that proto-Gnosticism? Flesh is bad, spirit's good. But John says, if you don't confess he's incarnate, you're not from God. Another, and maybe more explicit, is 2 John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So that's a very explicit, this is anti-Christian. You can't hold this and belong to Christ. Well, that's why some would argue John's writing against early forms of this, of this Gnosticism. Gnosticism. But there are foundational texts where God commands us to glorify him in and with our body, which fundamentally means you can't say in redemption, flesh is bad. You should deny yourself. You should take up your cross, crucify self. Don't deny the part of yourself that loves Jesus. It wants to glorify him and obey his commands. Feed that part. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised bodily. The apostles who saw him ascend heard the angels say he's going to return bodily. Forever, the second person of the Trinity, from the time of the incarnation to eternity future, is embodied. When he rose from the dead, people touched the nail prints and the scars in his body from the crucifixion. We will see him bodily and, and 
He's the, he's the first fruits of what we will be, but between here and then, 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 12, you guys are familiar with the Romans passage, maybe even the Corinthian one, but we, our worship is primarily a living sacrifice of our body. It's a crawling on the altar with all of ourself. No, no sacrifice in the Old Testament just jumped on the altar and bound itself down. They had to be forced and tied But Romans says, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, willing sacrifice. All right, let's go to some of the, that's that's a little bit of biblical framework, but historical background on Gnosticism. This comes from uh, a Lexham Press Bible dictionary. The church fathers of the second century and later condemned Gnostic teachers and belief as heretical. And I highlight heretical before I go to the next few slides because we need to recover an understanding of a distinction between heresy and error. If somebody disagrees with you, they might not be a heretic. We all have error, all of us. All of us have erroneous thinking in our understanding of Scripture, the mind of God, the Christian life. That's why the best way to mess up your theology is to read the Bible. As we continue to contend with the truth, God continues to transform us, and we see our erroneous thinking. Heresy is another category. Heresy is to embrace something that is completely incompatible with true Christianity. The Gnostics were proven not to be in error but to be heretics, anti-Christian. So the early church fathers who who, who spilled a lot of ink fighting against Gnosticism in the early centuries were, you may recognize some of these names, Justin Martyr, early church historian, Uh, have you say the second guy's name, Hagasippus, second century, Hippolytus, Eusebius of Caesarea, Origen, maybe you've familiar with Origen, Tertullian, and Irenaeus, but the key contender against Gnosticism in the early church was that last fella, Irenaeus. Uh, Justin Martyr, uh, uh, pardon me, um, the second guy, Hegesippus, was a Roman Jewish Christian historian apologist who wrote against heresies, particularly Gnosticism and Marcionism. The third guy, Hippolytus, Hippolytus, argued against 33 distinct Gnostic groups. So I said earlier, there's not like a codified, this is what Gnostics believe. There were so many offshoots of Gnosticism in the early church that this third guy wrote against 33 distinct Gnostic groups. Eusebius devoted a chapter of his ecclesiastical history, church history, to refuting Gnostic groups and rejecting each of them by name as false teachers. Origen denounced Gnosticism as heresy. Tertullian was an early church Christian apologist and a polemicist against heresy, including Gnosticism in his contemporary age. But then I mentioned Irenaeus. His main work, his principal kind of magnum opus is a book called Adversus Heresies, Against Heresies, and it's dedicated to one theme, you guessed it, refuting Gnosticism. So this was a big deal in the early church. The basic similarity I've mentioned is the distinction between spiritual and material. Uh, why did it go back? 
Ah, there we go. Uh, here's two quotes. One uh, author named Logan who wrote a book called The Gnostics and another Pearson against Gnosticism. Here's what they say. Logan, the Gnostics' goal is to attain salvation from the fallen physical world in which they are trapped through obtaining the secret knowledge or gnosis. So again, functional salvation based on a functional definition of sin that's anti-biblical. Pearson, Gnostics believe that gnosis frees the divine spark within humans, allowing it to return to the divine realm of light. So you just need more enlightenment. That's your problem. Your problem isn't fundamentally being spiritually dead and needing regeneration. You just need enlightenment, the secret knowledge for the select few. So I'm going to now, with that gross oversimplification of Gnosticism, go to the Reformation period, and then I want to circle back at the end and see if we can make a, a connection between these two heresies in church history. I mentioned that during the Reformation era, 16th century, we're dealing with a heresy that had erupted since, since Gnosticism had really gained some traction through about the 6th, 7th century, about the time the Apostles' Creed was written. So then emerges a new articulation, and it is heretical, and I, I just told you it's Pelagianism. So what is Pelagianism? Maybe you've heard that word before. Um, Feldmuth says in his Dictionary of Church History that Pelagianism is the theological position that emerged in the early 5th century in connection with the writings of the British monk Pelagius. It was enhanced and developed by disciples after the death of Pelagius and came to affirm the ideas, here you go, that original sin is not a sound biblical doctrine. There is no such thing as original sin, they would argue biblically, and that the human will is completely free to choose either good or evil. Individual salvation or damnation depends upon that choice. This view was rejected by the church largely because of the influence of a, another early church father, Augustine of Hippo. So, um, for some reason my slides are playing tricks on me. Another definition or description, Pelagianism taught that people are capable of avoiding sin and choosing to live righteous lives even apart from God's grace. Pelagius rejected the ideas of original sin and that of predestination. Concerning predestination, I love Spurgeon's uh, practical application. He said, God must have chosen me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after. I like that. And that's because he had a faithful understanding of, of sin. Pelagius and his adherents did not. Now, if you've not heard of Pelagianism, you've probably not heard of semi-Pelagianism. That's actually the wave that we're continuing to deal with in our age of church history. Semi-Pelagianism. People may not call it that, but you'll see it everywhere once you start to understand. Satan has no new lies. He's just repackaging old lies. So what's the semi-Pelagian view? It held that grace was crucial in salvation, but that initial steps toward Christian faith were to be taken by free human will 
God would respond in this view by offering more grace and thus a synergistic salvific process would ensue. So maybe you've heard that term before, synergism. Two parties working together to accomplish an end, that synergy. And a synergistic understanding of salvation is God does his part, we do our part. Now granted, if there's 100 steps of salvation, he may take 99 toward us, but we take one toward him, thus synergistically, man and God conspiring together for human redemption. That's a semi-Pelagian view. Again, once you start to see it, you'll see it. You can't unsee it. Did you mean it? Did you pray this prayer? Were you sincere? You'll see it everywhere once you start to see it. Biblically, salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. Monergism, one party alone does the work. And the Bible teaches from beginning to end that God saves all by himself and all for himself. Hence why Pelagianism and all of its offshoots, like semi-Pelagianism, were rejected. So remember I said Augustine was a key party, though he lived in the early church era, in helping the reformers refute Pelagianism. Here's Augustinianism, and this is according to uh, Hodge. I think I have cited on the next slide. By the sin of Adam, this is what I would say is a faithful understanding of human sin. Okay. By the sin of Adam, in whom all men together sinned, sin and all the other positive punishments of Adam's sin came into the world. By it, human nature has been both physically and morally corrupted. Every man brings into the world with him a nature already so corrupt that it can do nothing but sin. That's so sobering. The best 10 seconds of your life are reason enough for God to send you to hell forever. I think that's a faithful understanding of the doctrine of sin. So the last sentence, the propagation of this quality of his nature is by concupiscence. Um, So that comes from Alfred Hodge in his Augustinianism, biblical homartiology versus Pelagianism. So same resource gives this, I wish I could have squeezed them on one slide so you could see the difference, but there was too much verbiage and I didn't want to cut more of it out than I already did. Pelagianism would say, as to original sin, by his transgression, Adam injured only himself, not his posterity. In respect to his moral nature, every man is born in precisely the same condition in which Adam was created. There is therefore no original sin. Little babies, cute and cuddly, are innocent like Adam when he was created in the garden pre-fall. And if Pelagianism wouldn't say totally innocent, they would say at least partially that there's a part of the human soul and will that is untainted by the fall of Adam and is capable, therefore, of pursuing God. You got big problems with the New Testament, not to mention the old, but places like Romans 3. None good. None who seek after God. Everybody's mouth is an open grave. You've all cursed him. 
Romans 1 to 3 is a tour de force on original sin. In Romans 1 to 3, the outline of Romans, that's the first chunk after the prologue. But the chunk of Romans, the greatest letter ever written, begins. That's my stop talking at you alarm. Um, begins by saying, Jew, Gentile are all under sin. And you guys know the end of that section, Romans 3.23. That's how it ends. All have sinned. Nobody's glorified God. So Pelagianism would argue against that. So last week, we saw from that affirmation of faith that I read at the beginning, four hamartiological problems with Gnosticism and Pelagianism. We didn't call it that. But what we saw last week in our biblical understanding of sin were these four truths. The Bible does teach the doctrine of original sin. I tried to lay that out briefly last week. The Bible does teach that all of Adam's posterity is thoroughly corrupt, federal headship. The Bible does teach that we are all totally depraved. There's not a spark left within us, Pelagius, that has capacity to go after God. Salvation is all of grace. And then finally, we're therefore all under God's just judgment apart from the work of Christ. Well, that's our core doctrine uh, series, historical overview of doctrine of sin for today. Lord willing, next week we'll look at some practical applications. We have three minutes. Uh, Does somebody have a burning question or comment? We really have five, but let's do three. (laughs) Uh, A burning question or comment or some feedback that you would like to add. Thank you, brother. Anybody? Benjamin. This is probably loaded, so I'm okay. sorry. But so if someone is holding to a semi-Pelagian view of salvation, yep. is the word error or heresy more appropriate for that? Are they a heretic? Yeah. Yeah, this is, um, that's a really good question. So I want to speak really uh, as clearly as I can and succinctly as I can. Personally, I don't think so, but there's a caveat. I think we're all natural Arminians. Nobody born Calvinistic. We're also all born thinking we're amazing. We're awesome. God can't wait to get somebody as good as us on his team. I think true converts can be truly converted, still assuming basically semi-Pelagianism. Here's the distinction. This is my caveat. They're not a heretic yet. They don't prove themselves to be unregenerate yet. But just like all of us, you don't have to know anything other than Jesus is some kind of wonderful and died in your place and rose again to be saved. That's, that's it. But as you encounter truth, like the best way to mess up your theology is read the Bible, you'll say, oh, he is wonderful. And I would say, you know, the big C's, conversion, Calvinism, Christian hedonism, ecclesiology, all feel like a new conversion. 
So when some, I've heard so many people say, when they started to understand the doctrines of grace, if Calvinism scares you, that's what I'm talking about, the doctrines of grace, that God saves by himself for himself, this is, this is me, this is my testimony. For the first three years, four years of my conversion, I thought, oh man, God looked down the portal of time from eternity past, because he's omnipresent. He saw who would choose him. He marked us. He kind of went in reverse and let history run its course. And all those who he knew would have chosen him are those who he does save. You know what that is? Pelagianism. <laughs> that is not true. And I was trying to fit a doctrine of predestination into my very inflated view of myself. So I started with the wrong definition of sin and got the wrong understanding of salvation. But as I kept bumping into Romans, you know, I either tear it out or believe it. So I don't think everybody's a heretic if they start there. I do think they prove to be unregenerate if they willfully, purposefully redefine sin. I think they prove themselves to have been never converted. Um, yeah, good question. That took all of our time.